This is the Child Welfare Information Gateway Podcast, a place for those who care about strengthening families and protecting children. You'll hear about the innovations, emerging trends, and success stories across child welfare, direct from those striving to make a difference. This is your place for new ideas and information to support your work to improve the lives of children, youth, and families. The need for strong relationships and parental support continues when a child enters foster care. Children need to feel loved and cared for by their mothers, fathers, siblings, and maternal and paternal relatives. Even when parents are unable to keep their children safe at home, parents can remain actively involved with their children in foster care in safe and healthy ways. Foster and birth families must work together to support children in and after care to help ensure successful reunification. Hello everyone, Tom Oates here and welcome into the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. I just read the Children's Bureau's description of a national effort they're advancing to leverage foster care as a support to families rather than a substitute for parents. All right, well, question number one, what does that mean? Well, basically, strengthening the entire family through foster care and related services while maintaining, as best as possible, a child's healthy connections to their family and consistency in their day-to-day living. And question number two, how do you deliver? Well, we're going to spend some time chatting with some organizations incorporating an array of family strengthening and support services into their child welfare and foster care practice. Across two episodes, we'll break down how the organizations work with families and assess their needs, partner with other agencies and service providers, and the structure that enables them to deliver positive outcomes. Now, in our next episode, we'll feature the constellation of services and partners that come together in San Diego County, California. Now, on this episode, we'll head to New York City, specifically the Sunset Park section of Brooklyn and the work of the Center for Family Life. Now, the Center for Family Life is not a child welfare-specific organization. Child welfare is part of their neighborhood-specific family and social services. And we'll dive into what's provided with Julia Jean Francois. She is the center's co-director. What is unique is that all of these services are part of the Center for Family Life. So everyone works for the same organization. And that makes partnership and coordination a little easier. Now, some takeaways I want to point out for you are... How this group of service providers, each with different skills and approaches, create and deliver a tailored support system for each family. Second, how Julia and company have woven trauma-informed care into the entire organization. And third, what they do to ensure children in foster care maintain their daily routines as best as possible. Okay, we'll be back to talk about some helpful resources and information you can use to help leverage foster care as a support for families after we share our conversation with Julia Jean Francois from the Center for Family Life here on the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. So, Julia, the Center for Family Life has this full really community uh, of resources and services. Can you do me a favor and kind of explain that array of services and how foster care then fits within that complement? 
Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, Center for Family Life is a settlement house, which means that we are part of an umbrella uh, group of settlement houses across the United States that offer integrated services to communities. Um, it's uh, In our case, what that means is that we have services really across the board, everything from food pantry to after school to um, child welfare services to adult employment, small business development, legal services. Uh, today is the first day of free tax filing, as a matter of fact. So we have um, a very comprehensive portfolio of services. And the way that child welfare fits into that and foster care fits into that is that we understand child welfare from a really a primary prevention perspective, meaning that we believe that if you can surround communities with um, needed supports and services, if you can help families um, identify ways to have economic security and um, social and emotional supports, that you can very quickly stabilize families and help them live uh, fulfilling and enriching lives and so we look at foster care really as just a component of that continuum, that if along the way um, in, a, in a family's kind of developmental trajectory uh, while they're living in community, it comes to pass that there are um, family interactions or struggles that lead to a foster care placement. Our belief is that the most um, productive way to move forward is to really stabilize the family economically, socially, emotionally, educationally. And so we wrap these services around families and engage them as deeply as possible uh, in the foster care program in a variety of supports, well beyond what we might traditionally think of as child welfare services. And you've also got a, a, an approach to you know community and a community of services, but the way you approach a family also looks at the community that they live in. So you don't treat a family as just a parent or a parent and a child. Explain to me how you guys look at or view what, quote unquote, a family is. Absolutely. It's a wonderful question. I'm glad you asked it. Um, we look at a family as really a dynamic and organic uh, kind of coming together of people. And so in the family, there are many tasks that have to be done. Children have to go to school. People have to be able to eat their breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, families need to be able to pay rent and to accomplish tasks. And often we actually talk in terms of households, not even family, because there will be a number of people who interact, grown-ups, children, helpers, relatives, who together um, ensure that the family can move forward day to day. So when we look at a family and we think about it in our foster care program, we think about what are all of the contributions that the numbers of um, folks who, who are part of this household make? Who goes to work? Who takes care of children? Who takes them to school in the morning? And how can we kind of choreograph a, um, a set of agreements where everyone is well taken care of, everyone has the opportunity to have their needs met. And through uh, thinking of the family like that, I think you come up with many more creative ideas and options about how people can support each other and how they can um, productively engage with each other in a way that 
minimizes the chances that people would experience personal violence or turn to more aggressive interactive um, options to, to meet their needs or make their point. So by looking at the household as a kind of choreography, if you will, of people with different capacities, different needs, different um, ability to devote time and energy, I think you come up with a much more dynamic view of what the what is possible with families, rather than thinking, I think, in a very conventional way, and, and to my mind, not an extremely productive way of having a parent who is a perpetrator, or a parent who is um, uh, is a, is uninformed or a poor parent or a parent who is um, aggressive and children who are simply needy. This is this is not the frame that we adopt here at the center. You know, a lot of what you point to when you start to look at, you know, the entire family component is what, you know, what are all the inputs? What are all the outputs? What are people doing? And how can you best take advantage of that and help support that? And with this underlying theme of supporting that child. Um, so the Center for Family Life has to be able to not only you know, engage the families to, to get them in a position to where that family is strong, that family is stable. But during this process, the, the children have to ensure that their lives are still as stable as possible. So what are you able to do just to make sure, like you mentioned, you know, getting to school on time, maintaining the same kind of relationships or activities? What are you able to do to make sure that those children experience as much stability as possible? Right. Well, that's a really great question because I think uh, implied in your question is that perhaps there's some sort of hierarchy of what we attend to first, second, third. Um, and, and you know, of course, in, in real on the ground case planning, there have to be priorities, right? You, you can't simply do everything at the same time. Um, so what we think about when we think about the child having a stable and productive and successful life is we think about how that child is being supported by, but also interacting as a as a as their own person in their relationships uh, in in their family. And this is particularly true when you talk about adolescents, because um, adolescents certainly think about their own goals and their own aspirations. Um, littler children, you might not that might not be as much of a factor, but certainly with adolescents, it is. Um, so what we think about is. Stability for the family requires that all parties have, it's sort of like your Maslow's hierarchy of needs, um, have minimally the things that they need to live a predictable, manageable um, life that they feel is comfortable. So a child will need minimally support to be able to get up in the morning, have a breakfast, go to school, be able to study and learn. But all of those requirements that the child has mean that the parent needs to be active and informed and in in uh, enter, has a sufficient energy to support the child in all of those tasks. So the child's needs really are parallel to and um, happen it can be met in sync with the parent being strengthened. So what we are always asking ourselves is, how can the caseworker help the parent to do things like understand and um, set up a predictable um, 
developmentally appropriate schedule for their child so that their child's daily needs are for food, shelter, education are met. But at the same time, we can't take our eyes away from the fact that the parent needs support in order to have the inner strength and organization and resources to be able to get up in time to wake the child up in the morning, perhaps, and prepare the breakfast and walk to the school and understand the homework and interact with the teacher. So it's really a parallel uh, situation. And our workers, you know, I won't minimize it. It's a very, very high level of work. And it's a, it requires enormous dedication and support. We provide a tremendous amount of supervision and support and training for our workers so that they have the ability to pay attention to these various um, issues all at the same time. You can't only attend to the child. And I think this is something that perhaps happens in traditional child welfare. We view the child as the unit of attention, as it were. All of our energies focus on um, interventions directed at the child's well-being to the detriment of the parent who is simply not gaining ground, not skill building, not being supported to develop the skills, the capacity to, to access resources, the ability to generate income, all of the things that parents need to be able to participate in this relationship uh, with their children in a productive way. So you come in contact with a family. And then you've got to, you know, identify all the various things that you just touched base on, on where you can help, where you can add skills. But every family is different. Every situation is different. What are you doing to identify that? How can you, what's the best way that you guys have found to assess a family uh, when they first come in contact with you guys? Well, I love that question because that's something we actually got some wonderful consultation on some years back. we were able to, we had um, some terrific grant funding for a few years, and we were able to do something that we had never done before, but that we had always wished to do. We took the intake documents from every program that we offer here at Center for Family Life, and there are a number of them. We probably have at least eight different documents, documents that screened people for public benefits, documents that screened people for their need for legal supports, documents that screened people for their needs for employment, documents that screened people for safety and risk issues. And we worked with a marvelous group that engaged in what they referred to as a simplification process. And it's what that what that meant for us and what it means actually in industry is that you you um, winnow out all of the common factors from all of these services that you would want to know about when you first meet a family so that you can understand, are they getting the appropriate amount? of public benefits that they would need to stabilize their family. Things like SNAP benefits or health insurance or other other things that might be incredibly stabilizing and helpful to the family. At the same time, you're learning about whether the parent perhaps has no income or maybe they have never gotten a GED or there are a variety of issues that are stopping them from being able to actualize their own career potential. Then we ask, of course, given that we're a child welfare organization, about safety and risk issues in the home. But we, the comprehensive intake is much broader than what we had 
been required to ask about by our child welfare authority here in New York City, where we operate. Um, it is a much it's a much broader look. We've shared it with our child welfare authority, and they've taken interest in it because it uh, it is clear to us that when you engage families right from the start, and again, it's a matter of even-handed attention to a number of issues, um, and you and you ask these issues, and you you inquire um, has that do both of the parents if there are both parents in the home have a job if they have a job are they being paid the appropriate wage i mean these are simple questions but you'd be surprised at how many people have never in the context of child welfare been asked about things like this do they have the appropriate amount of food stamps so we we tackle this this array of issues right from the start. And we make it clear to our case planners that their job isn't just to narrowly attend to, let's say, parenting classes or skills, um, making a referral for a parent to parenting skill classes. That is not the scope of their their responsibility in its entirety. They have a much broader scope of responsibility and they need to understand, is this family stable? well positioned to actualize their potential and how can the case planner work productively as a partner critically as a partner with them to be able to actualize these these uh plans that we will develop with hand in hand with the family about reaching their potential and creating um, a kind of a platform where the children and the grown-ups can grow and thrive. You know, I'm, I'm curious because the Center for Family Life, like you had mentioned before, is this full array of services and child welfare is a portion of it. So regards to foster care, regards to child welfare, how are those families coming into contact with you? Right. Well, Center for Family Life is um, the same kind of foster care agency that all of the voluntary providers are here in New York City, and I, I maybe it would be helpful to mention just as a point of context, New York is unique in that it is so large, the city of New York is so large that the um, public entity that manages child welfare subcontracts child welfare services, including foster care, to voluntary providers. It's unique in that way. It's not the way it is in other states where the government themselves provides foster care. So some of the listeners might be wondering how is it that this private agency is doing foster care? That's because that's how it's done in New York City. So the way we learn about foster care cases really are, are, are there are two ways. The, the most common way is that a, a family in a neighborhood um, like ours will come to the attention of the Child Welfare Authority, either because of a hospital report or a school report or some other way in which the family has been noticed by the Child Welfare Authority, and then they will reach out to us and ask us if we can manage the case. And that might be through um, providing foster care in a foster care, foster boarding home setting that we would manage and monitor, or it might be through a kinship setting, meaning that this would be the relative of of the children, uh, child or children who are coming into care. So in either case, those referrals would be made by the Child Welfare Authority after an investigation takes place. Very, very infrequently, I think it had only happened about two years ago, we had one case of this nature, where we have a robust primary prevention service here. We serve hundreds of families every 
per year in what we refer to as primary prevention or just prevent general preventive services. Once in a great while, we will identify a family in our own service, in our primary prevention service, and we will contact the Child Welfare Authority and say, we believe the level of risk is so high in this case that this should become a foster care case. Now, what's unique in those situations, and I'm proud to say that we are the only provider in New York City that does it this way, but what's unique is that at that point, because we have both primary prevention and foster care, we don't discharge the family and send them off somewhere else to foster care. They can stay right in their neighborhood with the same portfolio of services with the same caseworker, and we can simply intensify the amount of contact and interaction that we have with the family by moving them into the foster care program and out of the primary prevention program. As I say, that happens very rarely, um, and we're very happy about that. Uh, but if it needed to be that, that and if uh, perhaps a family came in for primary prevention, where they also can be referred by the Child Welfare Authority, and uh, we realized in the first or second visit that this was a much different situation than we had imagined and that the family needed a higher level of care, we can seamlessly transition into that level of care. And it's helped us to come to permanency, either reunification or adoption or uh, kinship guardianship, which is an option here in New York City, uh, much more quickly and much more efficiently than if you have children that are moving between programs and between services um, where those gaps uh, can can create a lot of delay. And, and I want to make something clear for anyone who's who's listening that New York City contracts out, as, as Julia has said, but it's not one contract for the city. It is you know, because New York is so large, it's locality based. And so you are referring to all the, uh, the services that the Center for Family Life is able to provide, not even for the entirety of Brooklyn, for the entire borough, but one particular section because the city is is so huge and the population is so high. That's right. So you've got all of these services that make up for the Center of, uh, for Family Life. And you do engage a family for whatever the assessment tells you they, you need. How then do you get all of those right service providers at the table to uh, not only agree to what the plan looks like, but then to coordinate and work together, knowing you've got so many entities kind of coming together all with this one single goal? How do you guys internally make sure that you're not stepping on any toes, but then there's also not any gaps? Right. That's a great question. Um, well, one of the ways that that's made easier here at the Center for Family Life is that so many of the services are, are our own. <laughs> so what one of the things that we need to do administratively on the back end is ensure that all of our program staff understand that they are members of the same team. They are team CFL, whether they're in the adult employment program or the family counseling program, or the after-school program, or whatever program they may be, they are team CFL. And we actually do a lot of professional development, including a yearly all-staff retreat, which has about 300 people in it, um, that allows us to every year review the mission, the vision, the purposes of the center, to understand the portfolio of services that we offer so that all of our staff, whether they are a 19-year-old uh, assistant group leader in an after-school program, or whether they are a 70-year-old food pantry worker, understand that they're part of the Center for Family Life and that they are 
all members of the same team pulling together in the same direction. And so um, customer service, uh, which isn't a subject you hear much about in child welfare discussions very often, but I'm proud to say that we talk about it all the time, is paramount. Anyone here, uh, we joke about this a little bit, but is sort of wearing the virtual blue blazer of how may I help you? So that if you're a child welfare worker here at the Center for Family Life, you're a case planner, there should be no hesitation to um, engage a one of our adult employment job search folks or the folks that help prepare resumes because they understand that they are part of the same team pulling in the same direction and they will work hand in hand with collaboration. Now, so there's a lot of services that we have in-house and we can get a lot done. This is very important to sort of coming from the other direction because it has happened many, many times that, for example, in our adult employment program, someone coming in, never mentioning child welfare, no discussion of any needs for other kinds of social services, will, after two weeks in the adult employment program going through job readiness, reveal to the job counselor that they are a victim of domestic violence or that their partner is abusing their child. This has happened countless times. So not only do we have a great opportunity to engage sort of from the child welfare program out, but also from our other programs that we offer in so that everyone operates as a team. Now, that's not to say that we do everything. We are not a primary care provider. We do not provide early childhood services earlier than three. So what we've done is we have worked very hard over the last 40 years to develop deep partnerships um, productive partnerships with our sister agencies in Sunset Park so that we have comfort in the workers and facility in the workers to reach out and engage other partners, whether it's a specialty medical care provider, a developmental disability provider, um, occupational therapist, whoever it is in the work. And the case planners, remember I was talking about that notion of household, the case planners really look at those helpers as being part of how that household ticks. If the family needs early intervention services, let's say for a two-year-old that's in the family, that early intervention provider who's maybe doing speech and language help or um, any other kind of uh, developmental delay intervention is a part of that team that's a part of that family. They're a part of that, that family's ability to sustain itself. So the case planner, again, through supervision, I might digress for just one second to say all of our case planners receive one to one and a half hours of supervision a week. They have a two-hour casework meeting every week where we do deep dives into case um, examples and clinical issues and uh, other kinds of issues. Each supervisor has supervision every week and a supervisory meeting every week. So there's a very robust support process to guide our workers on how to interact not only with the family members, but also with sister providers throughout the community so that we can move very quickly and efficiently toward family stabilization. And you talked about two things there that, that I think are very, very important. And one is investing in your staff, you know, letting them develop, letting them grow. Um, but as you talked about customer service and serving your customer, you know, a, a key part of that for successful customer service is knowing your customer. 
And so there's a, there's a neat part here that you and I had talked about before we were recording that I want to share and ask you to, to dive into a little bit, because with part, of, with part of that assessment is also approaching things from a trauma-informed care. So you are able to enforce, or not enforce, but interject uh, a clinical care. You have a clinical connection to your case planning. Could you go into that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my own background prior to coming to Center for Family Life um, was a, a many, many years uh, in mental health practice. And so I was a, a mental health clinician for 15 years and then an administrator in the area of uh, mental health for years. And I have to say that the whole idea of evidence-based practice and clinical practice um, was it was uh, came to mental health probably several decades before it came to child welfare. So while we're um, just sort of waking up to the idea that evidence-based practice and things like um, cognitive behavioral therapies or uh, trauma-informed therapies are of use in child welfare, one of the things that um, became part of my, hopefully, contribution to Center for Family Life was really an attention to the fact that Evidence-based practices and clinical practice serve a very important role in equipping your workers to engage effectively, communicate effectively, understand the um, reactions and responses of clients so that you can engage in this much broader kind of community stabilization work. So the clinical practice is is a means to an end, the end being community stabilization and families being able to have um, fully uh, actualized lives. But in order to engage the families and to convey um, a perspective and on, in order to understand the family's reactions to your, to your suggestions and perspective, you need to know something about trauma-informed practice. So we train our workers on how to understand how to have a clinical session with the families, whether it's a family therapy session or whether it's an individual session with the child, because families are coming from a place of deep personal pain often. Um, their reactions are mediated through ex multiple experiences of trauma, of violation, of uh, feeling dismissed of feeling unheard. So it isn't so simple as just saying, hey, here's a great path toward family stabilization. Let's just all get going. You know, here's a job opportunity and here, no, you're, you, your case planners need to have the engagement and um, interactive skills and the communication skills to be able to hear what your clients are telling you about their lives, about the lens that they impose on their, how they look out at the world. It's a lens that is shaped by trauma. It's shaped by immigration trauma here in, in um, Center for Family Life. It's shaped by historical trauma. And so it's not simply a matter of us dishing out good ideas and saying to people, here's a great plan, you know, let's go for it. There is this very profound layer of understanding how to create authentic communication, how to create authentic engagement when the individuals that you are serving come from 
places of deep personal pain and violation. And you need to be able to have um, truly supported workers who are skill building in their own clinical practice skills and their trauma-informed lens to be able to effectively engage with folks. Otherwise, um, you're going to have combat (laughs) between your case planners and your clients. You're going to describe people as resistant. You're going to describe them as angry. You're going to describe them as um, uninterested uh, people. And those those are not fair characterizations. Those are not accurate characterizations. Um, our job, our the burden is on us to figure out how to hear what people are saying to us, how to understand what maybe the unspoken meaning is in it, and how to respond in a in a in a way that doesn't shut down communication, but rather opens and encourages communication. If I can ask you to kind of pick your brain a little bit for those other agencies, those child welfare agencies, or those that that are working in prevention or even or foster care, what's maybe the quickest win that they can get in terms of training or exposing their current staff to take a more clinical approach if they if they're if they're thinking you know I'd like to you know boost my staff's capacity where's the first thing you would suggest for somebody to go I, honestly the first thing is your supervisors because i think the the problem is in some of these um, implementations and you know they're driven in part by um, people's excitement and wish to be forward thinking. These are, you know, people have very good motivations to try to um, take on a a clinical practice lens. But um, if you don't have supervisors who are competent to be able to uh, support the workers to learn and to carry out these interventions, it it doesn't come together. I think there's a notion that you sort of train up the entire uh, staff um, that's complicated to do. Uh, you may end up having case planners who are learning faster than the supervisors and feeling unsupported. Um, so I think part of it is who do you hire as a supervisor, looking to find supervisors that come to you with uh, a, a kind of lens, a trauma-informed lens, who have clinical practice experience, um, who can support you in bringing that to the case planners, you know, from a, as a, from a management point of view, as a manager, I, you know, when I'm hiring a supervisor, I'm drawn to someone who I know is familiar with the paperwork and is familiar with the reporting requirements and is re- familiar with child welfare sort of as a, as a administrative format, if you will, for how we interact with people. But I may, may need, um, Many agencies may need to sort of switch gears a little bit and look for people who actually bring clinical practice expertise to their roles as directors or supervisors. Um, when I, I I prefer to hire up internally for supervisory staff because I've had a chance to observe the case planners and I see what their skills and talents are. And in my experience, at least, the paperwork requirements and administrative requirements are not rocket science that people can learn. Um, Having that sort of, uh, as as the classic psychological uh, text referred to it as that third ear, that ability to really hear uh, through a trauma uh, sort of lens, that's 
that's more an art than a science with many folks. And you need to pick the right supervisors who actually have the competency to to make this happen in your place. Thank, thank you for letting me go down that uh, that tangent. Um, oh, it's a it's yeah. from a management point of view. That's a really important point. Sure, um, but a lot of the agencies who are listening, and, and I want to wrap up with this, they may not have the luxury like the Center for Family Life, where all of those services are under one roof. Um, so when you would sit there and maybe sit to somebody who's maybe working in a state agency or they're 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 private, but have to work with partners outside of kind of uh, their umbrella. What's the biggest advice you would give to enable an agency to provide, as as you guys are talking about, this full holistic family support approach when trying to either provide prevention services or or reunite a family? Sure. Well, you know, Tom, it didn't occur to me before when we we were talking, but it comes to my mind now. I'd say, and I'm not I'm not joking, suspend disbelief. That's my advice. Um, people become so uh, kind of used to the fact that there is a a, a very limited view uh, that their that their workers will never take a, a broader perspective. That this is what's always happened. That these are civil servants. That they're not going to take a broader view. And through some of the um, opportunities I've had to look outside of New York. Um, mostly through the KC family programs where I was uh, very honored to serve as a consultant um, to a number of places outside of the city where they were implementing new um, child welfare system, you know, innovations. Uh, Again, it's back to this customer service thing. It's all about how you frame the work. If you frame the work as you are here to um, identify a perpetrator and assess safety and risk issues and then um, send people with you know, a slip of paper as a referral to various providers to, who will you know, hopefully guide them in a better way, whether it's a parenting class or an anger management class or some kind of other inter- mental health intervention. If that's how you think about child welfare, it's it's going to be really tough to change um, if you if you believe that that's what child welfare really is. But I've seen it over and over again. Did some work in Florida, in Maryland. Um, in uh, we we did other work around the country um, where the change in perspective comes from the top. If the child welfare authority or the municipality or the the vendor decides that, no, that is not their perspective. Their perspective is a holistic one. Their perspective is it's the responsibility of the municipality to hire up the right supervisors to understand this broader context for why we're doing child welfare. It's child welfare in the service of what is always the question. What are we trying to achieve? Is it just narrowly safety and risk monitoring, or is it a broader perspective? If you start by just reassessing the view that you come into this practice with and looking at the competencies of your workers and making different demands about what they're supposed to be doing with families and communities, it shifts. But I think it requires suspending disbelief. We've we've been in such a, a sort of like a hamster wheel of what we do every day that I don't think we've felt the the permission to be inspired or the permission to be um, to look beyond uh, what we've done historically. I'm, as I'm sitting with you, you can't see this, but I'm staring at a 
picture of our foundress, Sister Mary Paul Janschel, who started the Center for Family Life. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention her and her colleague, uh, Sister Geraldine, who started the Center for Family Life. And Sister Mary Paul was notorious in, uh, in sort of like a Ruth Bader Ginsburg of child welfare. <laughs> she was a little tiny person who was tough as nails. And she was adamant that we had to look beyond the models and perspectives that were around us and to think more broadly about what it was that we were doing in a neighborhood and trying to achieve. And she really shaped child welfare, the neighborhood-based child welfare perspective here in New York City. Her model, our model, became the neighborhood-based model that the city took up and and was um, actually adopted by the Casey Foundation as well. So we've, from our inception, been uh, taught to think think broadly, think outside the box, as they say. And, and that's what I think others need to feel the permission to do. Child welfare, can the script can be written in many different ways. Um, and we don't have to just look at it so narrowly. Julia, I, I thank you so much for sharing with us how you guys are breaking the hamster wheel, so to speak. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're jumping off the hamster wheel here to something else. Oh, thank <laughs> you so much for um, asking. And I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Many themes from our conversation with Julia that align with prevention approaches. Protecting children is paramount, but effectively supporting a family to build strengths and reduce risk factors can lead to reunification, which studies continue to point to as an effective way to deliver positive outcomes. Now, our next episode focusing on foster care as a path to reunification will take us to the West Coast in San Diego County, California. Now, there we'll talk about all of the different partnerships and tools used in a series of localized communities. Now, remember, we're going to be talking about San Diego County, not just the city of San Diego. We'll hear how the county incorporates resource and relative families as a key component to reunification. And there's a series of trainings and nonprofit groups working to prepare and empower those resource families. And it's all resulting in some positive returns, both qualitative and quantitative data. So head on over to this podcast webpage. Just go to acf.hhs.gov cb and search podcasts. We'll share some links to resources and groups involved in community partnerships and out-of-home care, along with all of the resources and contact information surrounding National Foster Care Month. So my thanks to Julia Jean Francois, the co-director of the Center for Family Life, for her time and willingness to join us here on the podcast. And for all of us here at Child Welfare Information Gateway, I'm Tom Oates. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us for this edition of the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Child Welfare Information Gateway is available at childwelfare.gov and is a service of the Children's Bureau, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Administration for Children and Families. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Information Gateway or the Children's Bureau.